And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. On the Skype line with us today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt. He's senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Kevin, it's an honor to have you on with us today. Great to be with you, Dan. You know, once in a while here at the ministry, someone, not too often, but just once in a while, someone will contact us and um, object to our belief that Jesus is God. Um, they don't. They don't really want to go there. Uh, perhaps it's been some influence from Jehovah Witnesses or another group, but uh, they have a problem with that. And so, um, I usually don't argue with a person when they call and talk to me. You know, I, I might say a few things, but. Typically, their mind is already made up, and they just don't really want to hear any information. But this uh, kind of begs the bigger question of the Trinity in the Bible. And today's A Plain Answer program is concerning that, the Trinity. Um, Huge subject. We can talk about it probably for days, not just uh, the short time that we have together but Kevin, can you get us started? Um, the Trinity in the Bible is it seen, for example, in both testaments? Maybe we could start there. Sure, Dan. Yes, I would say it is seen in both testaments, though it is seen more fully and more clearly in the New Testament. But the doctrine has deep biblical roots in the Old Testament. Um, you know, going back to. Um, God, at the very beginning, in Genesis 1, the Creator God, who creates by His Word through the Spirit, which is hovering over the face of the deep. So you have, if you will, the root of the Trinity in the very first sentence of the Bible, in Genesis 1, chapters, uh, verses 1 and 2. You have the idea of God you have the idea of God's word, and you have the idea of God's breath. You find the same thing in Psalm 33, for example. Um, you find this. Now, it is true that in the Old Testament, these tend to be um, underdeveloped. They tend to be the word and the breath or spirit of God tend to be seen as divine attributes um, and maybe not fully blossomed yet as as divine persons, but they are present there in a uh, in a form which develops and then blossoms in the New Testament revelation of Christ and the Spirit. Yeah, uh, that's helpful. Um, I'm thinking also about uh, that person who, um, while very sincere um, and and they think they're studying the Bible. Uh, believes themselves to be a Christian. And um, I don't know how to probe this too deeply, and I'm not sure that this is the right uh, context. But um, in a a simple sort of way, uh, Christians um, believe in Jesus who is God. Sure. I mean, Christianity is not a form of pure or simple uh, monotheism, right? Uh, we, we are not, we are monotheists. We believe in one God, but we, but the Christian confession has always been that that one God 
exists in or subsists in three persons. And so to confess the Christian faith, one has to confess the doctrine of the Trinity. And we see this codified in the Nicene Creed, right? The Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed from about 381, which very clearly delineates three persons. And and that Creed is broken into essentially three paragraphs, one on the Father, one on the Son, and one on the Holy Spirit. And it's the result of many decades, even a couple centuries, of the church reflecting and debating and arguing and doing the exegesis of myriad passages in Scripture and teasing out the implications of how those passages are to be architected together. But we are not simply theists, maybe be a better way to put it. We are not simply uh, people who believe in God in general, we believe in the triune God and no other God but that God. Yeah, that's very helpful indeed. Um, I seem to recall maybe one listener um, that we talked with had a real problem with uh, creeds also. Um, they didn't believe Jesus was God, but they also hated, like, for example, the Apostles' Creed. And um, it's interesting that that connection existed, at least with this one person. Well, yeah, that's a sort of maybe an adjacent issue to this question of the Trinity. But it's important to say that creeds are inescapable, Um, there's, there's no way to not have one. You may not write one down. You may even confess, uh, as this listener apparently has, uh, that you, uh, don't like creeds, uh, and that you don't have any creed, but everyone has some interpretation of what they think the Bible teaches and says. It really is not enough on the ground in the practical life of the church to just say, I believe in the Bible, because the next question will be, well, what do you believe the Bible says about X or Y or Z? <laughs> right. and, and, and as soon as you answer that question, you're, you're confessing a creed, whether it's written or not. And so, and there are primitive creeds right in the text of the New Testament. Jesus is Lord is a short creed. Um, the sort of hymnic, uh, song in, uh, in 1 Timothy 3 is a short creed. Um, There are creedal statements, summaries of the Christian teaching already embedded in the documents of the New Testament. And so the church has always had to confess, especially as people oppose certain things or say certain things that are heretical, they've had to publicly say, no, you can't say that, you must say this. So creeds are inevitable, and a good deal of of creed making in the first five or six centuries was about really two things. Is Jesus divine? And if so, how do we assert that um, and still remain people who are not worshiping two gods? Right? Oh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah. Right. Um, that That's, um, I should have mentioned that right up front. That's kind of the obvious, you know, uh, people might object, wait a minute, you're, you're, you say you have one God, um, there's right. only one God, but then uh, the ne- in the next breath you're saying the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. Right. What are you guys talking about? Have you ever heard that kind of objection? 
Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a common objection. And historically and down to the present day, it's it's still raised right by um, by Islam and uh, and by Judaism. I, uh, and not to mention there are other um, other movements out there that that have difficulty with it. W- what I would say about it is a, is a couple things. One is it's a differentiated unity. Uh, there's a certain complex, ineffable, mysterious one and threeness in God. This is not something that Christians have devised because we wanted to present the world with some sort of philosophical conundrum. The church arrived at these conclusions and and arrived reverently before the face of this holy mystery by exegesis by having to listen to Holy Scripture. It is Scripture itself that forces these questions upon us. And, and uh, some of these other ways out, I, you know, the Christian church holds, do not do justice to the fullness and the complexity of all the texts. As I said before, even in the Old Testament, there appears to be some plurality and some diversity in the Godhead. There is, there's the phenomenon of the angel of the Lord, who is God and yet distinct from God, clearly in some texts. There is a um, there is theophanies where God appears in, in, in such a way that he shows a kind of distinction cap- distinction making capability in his oneness. And so all of those things being present, um, there are promises of the Messiah in Isaiah and in Micah which indicate that the Messiah would be divine. Um, And then when we come to the New Testament, we have the revelation of Jesus, especially in John's gospel, but in many, many places in the New Testament uh, of his divinity. And then we have the gift of the Spirit, who, you know, even in the Old Testament, the Spirit takes on personal characteristics. The Spirit can be grieved, right? The, the The Spirit comforts. The Spirit has a certain divine personality. It's true that all of these things blossom and are seen more fully in the New Testament, but that's true of almost all doctrines that Christians hold. Um, uh, there's a sort of promise fulfillment dynamic as you move from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And uh, so I think it's very important to see that the Christian church came to codify something like the Nicene Creed. Um, after centuries of vigorous debate and engagement with the text of Holy Scripture, which is always the supreme authority above the creeds as the inspired, inerrant word of God. And so um, the doctrine of the Trinity is is derived from reflection and engagement and deep penetrating work with all the texts of Holy Scripture. Yes, amen to that. Um, today we're talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, and our guest is Dr. Kevin Sherritt, senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Um, before I forget, there's a there's a wonderful uh, statement of faith. Um, some people know about it called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's found online, and the particular edition I'm looking at right now has footnotes um, that references scripture verses, so it's a very handy tool 
But anyway, chapter 2 of that talks about God and the Holy Trinity and is well worth reading and studying. Uh, Now, Kevin, let's get practical here. Um, Not that we weren't practical, but this has practical implications to our life as a Christian and the life of the church. Um, Why does it matter to me as, as a little guy walking down the street that there is uh, one God, yet three persons. Um, why is the Trinity important? Um, well, it is the distinctively Christian doctrine. Um, without it, even though it may not appear uh, readily at first, without the doctrine of the Trinity, one has something other than Christianity. There are sects out there, um, groups that believe that Jesus died for their sins and even believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. But they are not Christian if they do not confess this doctrine of God. It is in many ways not only the distinctive doctrine, it's the supreme doctrine, the highest treasure of the Christian church. And, And as far as practically there's a lot that we could say about it practically um let's 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 take um creation uh if you have a doctrine of the holy trinity that's rich and full then you realize that god was three persons in a communion of light and love and that he was never lonely never needy he was he had if you will the plenitude of blessedness within his own being and now you view creation differently because creation is not because god needs something right. or because because god needs to show his power creation becomes this sort of uh abundant diffusion of god's free goodness creation is if you will superfluous meaning it's not necessary God did not need to create this world or a billion worlds to increase his glory at all or to increase his happiness or his joy or his delight because from all eternity the Father delights in the Son through the Holy Spirit and the Son delights back and pours his love and light back into the Father by the Holy Spirit. So there's a communion of glory and fullness and that means we look at the creation as pure gift pure unnecessary gift, pure superabundant goodness. And that changes the way you even approach your Christian life. In one sense, you start with the fact that we are contingent beings. We did not need to be, and yet we are, and God does not need our worship, and yet he commands us to worship him. Mm. So there's a, cert- there's a certain sense in which you can't really take seriously your Christian vocation until you understand how infinitely full and free God is and how um, how he does not require or need us, but yet summons us as his creatures. So, so for example, Isaiah 40 is very good on this. It speaks of God in his transcendent and infinite glory and fullness, and it speaks of the nations as nothing and less than nothing. All the nations, he, lift, he lifts them up like sand in his fingers. They're nothing and they're less than nothing. And nevertheless, that God creates, calls, and redeems Israel. So I do think even creation and the fundamental way we view ourselves um, when we think of the love of God, right? It's it's very doubtful that a God who is just a a a monolith, a singular being, can 
be love in the way that Christians at least think of love. God is love because love requires the other, right? Love requires outpouring and a, and a, and a dynamism of communion with another, and God has that in his own being. And this is what we mean when we say God is love. A non-Trinitarian that says God is love means something like God is loving or God can show can show the attribute of love toward other things. But we mean that the Holy Trinity is a living communion of love. And so we are created out of that love and called back into that communal life. So the Trinity changes the way you view salvation. Salvation is not just, although this is gloriously true, it is not simply having your sins forgiven and going to heaven. Salvation is a call or a summons into communion with the life and light and love of the triune God. So where the Trinity drops out of the picture, the whole Christian conception of salvation is flattened out and it's it's turned into a sort of individualistic thing where my sins are forgiven and I go to this happy place called heaven. But we lose sight of the fact that our calling is to see the face of the triune God in Jesus Christ and to have face-to-face covenantal communion with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. The, the great um, Puritan John Owen has a, has a book called Communion with God, and the subtitle is something about, uh, you know, distinct communion with all three persons, with the Father and with the Son and the Holy Spirit. So another way to summarize this, Dan, is to say in the Christian life, whether it's prayer, whether it's obedience, whether it's relationships, whether it's mission, uh, whether it's our conception of love and devotion to God, um, Trinitarianism says we have a relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. We don't just have a relationship with Jesus. We don't just have a relationship with God in general. We don't just have a relationship with three people that are all sort of poured into the same jar and mixed up somehow. We have an ordered gloriously intelligent and intelligible relationship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Everything in the Christian life comes from the Father, through the Son, in the Spirit, and then moves back in the Spirit, through the Son, to the Father. So I think that's pretty, pretty practical. Yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, Today we're talking with Dr. Kevin Sherritt. The subject is the Trinity, And uh, this has real implications for our lives. Now, the person of Jesus, um, he takes on human flesh, and one of the creeds talks about him being fully man and fully God. Uh, Before we get to the Trinity and the life of the church, can you just briefly touch upon, maybe for a minute, that fact? Um. Sure. Um, So Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity, the eternal Son or the eternal Word of the Father. As John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That Word is the Son, the second person of the Trinity, and that Word takes on a full and complete human nature. And in the event in which that occurs, we call that event the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And, so, and so the implications of this 
are again as sort of as wide as the Christian faith is, but they mean that Jesus shares solidarity with us in our weakness and in every way except for sin, that he, he can sympathize with our weaknesses, he atones for our weaknesses, but again, he he's able to bear the full wrath and curse of God because he is God. He's able to make, if you will, substitution because he is man and it was man who sinned, but also he is able and you can kind of see in this in this doctrine, um, he's able to give us a faith and to bring us into communion with the Father. So it's very important that Jesus be God. Otherwise, your whole conception of what Christian life is or communion or fellowship with God is is different. What salvation is is a return by a return of fallen creatures through the atoning life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Son in our humanity, to participation or at least, if you will, fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are called to communion with the the living Trinitarian God. And, and that is accomplished because the second person became man and made atonement. And having made that atonement, he sent the Spirit, the third person, so that in the Spirit, by the Son, we might have fellowship, a return to the Father's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This, um, this is important for everyone and their jobs that they have, whether it's like our son who's uh, HVAC technician, uh, yourself as a pastor, uh, the many homemakers that are out there, the mamas who are raising their children, those who are homeschooling, all of this brings meaning and all of this is important to us to to all of us um we uh are looking forward to going to church tomorrow hopefully you are dear listener and um if you don't have a good church i hope you can find one um the life of the church and the trinity why is it important to the church well the church's worship as i said is of this god and no other the church's proclamation, right? When the church preaches, she is so the danger of preaching without this is that we are not just lecturing or moralizing or entertaining. Um, we are participating in the divine life and trying to draw people into that love that the Father has for the Son in the Holy Spirit. Again, this is particularly acutely evident in John's gospel, but it's, it's very important to see that the love that God has for his people is the love that the Father has for the Son. Amen. Right? And, and, and the Son comes to enable us to taste that love in the Spirit. So, um, you know, and when, and when we do missions, right, when we do missions, we are sent into the world to try and gather people back into this communion. The Father, if you will, the triune God is the great missionary. Um, you know, Irenaeus, the second century church father, used to say that the, the, um, the Son and the Spirit are the two hands of the Father, right? And we speak of the missions of the Holy Trinity, meaning the Holy Trinity sends the Son, and then the Son Having been, having been raised from the dead and ascended, sends the Spirit so that the Son and the Spirit and the Father can come to dwell in our hearts together. So the very 
idea of missions and evangelism is a Trinitarian idea that is rooted in the missionary God, in the missions of the Father and the Son in and by the Holy Spirit in the world. Yeah. So we do not, we do not to maybe summarize this, we do not just have Jesus in our hearts, right? When Jesus comes to dwell in our hearts, he does so by, by means of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit comes, and when the Spirit comes, Christ dwells in our hearts. And when Christ dwells in our hearts, the Father also takes up his abode in us. It's an astonishing thing to think that the lowliest and simplest of saints who may have no understanding of this, and it's okay, right. it's okay because we are embraced in the reality of this Trinitarian love and life even when we don't understand it. The, the point of trying to grasp it is so that we can swim and pray and work and labor with the grain of the Trinity. But even if we are uh, ignorant of it, we are embraced by it and we are indwelt by the Holy Trinity. Amen. In the minute remaining, Kevin, share it. A book suggestion, maybe one or two books. One or two books that would be good on the Trinity. Well, yeah. I think I think I would start with a, an excellent introductory basic book um, called "Delighting in the Trinity" uh, by Michael Reeves. Uh, it's an excellent short readable book, um, and it really is, as its subtitle says, uh, an introduction to the Christian faith. In other words, what one will see when one starts to actually study the Trinity to engage God as he is, is that, oh, this is the whole Christian faith that is being un unpacked and impacted and shaped by the, the triune God. Uh, the great British theologian John Webster said that there really is only one doctrine in the Christian faith, and it's the doctrine of the triune God. Mm. Every, everything else is a footnote to that. We, we, basically, we have one message, the triune God and everything else in the light of and with the end of communion with the triune God. So Reeves's book is really excellent, Delighting in the Trinity. Um, I think after that, I would use Fred Sanders' book, The Deep Things of God subtitled How the Trinity Changes Everything. So those would be probably my first two recommendations, Dan. Well, that's helpful. Well, thank you very much. Kevin Sherritt has been our guest today. He's senior pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. If someone would like to join you tomorrow for worship, how could they find the church, Kevin? Uh, we're at 614 Station Road in Rock Tavern, New York in Orange County, Dan. Well, that sounds simple. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Dan. And dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.